You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, here from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswarn from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Ankit? Doing well, Prashant. Good to be back with you. Good to be here. Um, and so today, I guess we events have taken us back, uh, as they often do, back to the Korean Peninsula um, after our previous podcasts. But there have been a number of developments over just the past few weeks. We've heard news about uh, the North Korean unveiling of a submarine, and we've had in less than a week um, two sets of uh, missile tests. And so no shortage of developments to talk about. And this is coming amidst you know a number of other flashpoints that we've been talking about over the past few weeks, stuff on the South China Sea, um, U.S.-China tensions. And we also have, um, just as the focus on the North Korean situation is happening, the upcoming ASEAN Regional Forum uh, meetings that usually give us a sense of, you know, what the regional security environment is. So no shortage of developments to talk about, but maybe a good place to start here, Ankit, is help us make sense maybe of the developments that we've seen from North Korea over the past couple of weeks. And you know, how does this factor into our previous conversations that we've had about um, the, the sort of Trump-Kim summit and what the U.S. and North Korea were supposed to do, which, which is a, the plan was initially to get fast to working level talks and then try to reset the situation from where things were before. But it looks like there are, as quite often is the case, some developments on the North Korean side that are driving things too. Yeah. Um, no, thanks, Prashant. I think that's a really great overview. Um, I think the way to sum things up for our listeners is that July was a month that began with a lot of unfounded optimism about the diplomatic process with North Korea. And it appears to be ending, you know, we're recording this on July 31st. Uh, it appears to be ending with sort of a return to reality. And this kind of goes back to the point that I made in several articles that I wrote after the third Trump-Kim summit on June 30th, which happened during Trump's trip to South Korea when he met Kim Jong-un, crossed across the uh, military demarcation line, becoming the first sitting U.S. president to enter North Korea. But the big outcome from that summit was that U.S.-North Korea working level talks were supposed to resume. Of course, that hasn't happened yet, but I think after the experience in Hanoi, and you know, you can call Hanoi a failure, or you can say that we learned something in Hanoi, but whatever happened after Hanoi, we went into a deep freeze, and the June 30th meeting was sort of seen as an attempt to defibrillate this dying process between the United States and North Korea, which has really gotten hung up over little in common between the two sides on the fundamentals of the issue, which is that North Korea does not intend to disarm, and the United States isn't ready to do partial sanctions relief for anything short of disarmament. So... Mm -hmm. That, you know, that's, I think, the baseline for this conversation that we're having today, right? So a lot has happened in recent weeks. Kim Jong-un has tested four ballistic missiles. We're still waiting to hear what the latest ballistic missiles that were tested on the 30th, um, oh, sorry, on the 31st were. Uh, we're probably going to get images from the North Koreans in just a few hours after we record this, but I suspect they tested the same missile that they've been testing since May, the short-range ballistic missile known to the U.S. intelligence community as the KN-23. We don't know what the North Korean name for that missile is just yet. But the other big development was the inspection of what appears to be a submarine capable of carrying ballistic missiles by uh, Kim Jong-un. So Kim inspected the submarine on July 23rd, and that inspection came just days after a very important but kind of separate conversation that I wrote a couple pieces for us at The Diplomat about, which was that there appears to be a very serious unresolved question about what exactly happened on June 30th. So while the U.S. side came out of that meeting and told the world that 
you know, Trump and Kim have a great relationship and working level talks are going to resume soon. The North Koreans on July 16th released a foreign ministry statement lashing out at the U.S., South Korea's um, late summer military exercises. Uh, those military exercises have always given North Korea cause for concern. Uh, this year, they've been significantly recalibrated down to support diplomacy. Uh, last year and in previous years, they used to be called uh, Old Chief Freedom Guardian, which was the combined allied um, computerized command post exercise. So this doesn't actually involve the live deployment of thousands of troops or anything like that, but it's a, it's a, a computerized uh, command post operation. This year, uh, this is also going to happen in August, but it's a different exercise. It's called Dong Mang. But the North Koreans effectively cited this exercise as sort of contrary to what Trump had promised Kim on June 30th. And as far as we know, the U.S. side has not given us you know, any readout on the more detailed aspects of what Trump and Kim might have talked about. So now there's this question over what did the United States actually promise North Korea and is, you know, if the U.S. and South Korea go ahead with exercises, is that indeed a promise being broken? We, we simply don't know the answer to that question, right? I, I have reason to believe the North Koreans aren't simply fabricating that because they cited the fact that Pompeo also was in the room and he could probably vouch for this. Pompeo on July 19th, a few days after that North Korean statement, said that the exercises don't violate any agreements. And then we kind of enter this final period of July 2019, where we see a new ballistic missile submarine, we see new ballistic missile testing. And there's a separate dynamic to this uh, with the South Koreans um, that I can talk about um, in a little bit more detail. But that's kind of the general overview of where we are and how we got there. Yeah, I mean, that's helpful context, because I think we, we've been talking for a while now on the podcast about how to the extent, you know, and contrary to what um, Trump has been suggesting, um, whatever uh, sort of piecemeal agreement or, or accommodation that the United States and North Korea have arrived at in the last few months, um, you know, has been extremely fragile. And we've been waiting to kind of see how this is all playing out. And part of that, as, as is often the case with the North Koreans, hinges on particular wording and, and interpretation. So it really is important to pay attention um, to those developments. I also wanted to ask you, I mean, the, in your piece for us on on the submarines, you, you sort of got at this, I thought, in a, in a very um, you know important way, which is you talked a little bit about the external drivers about um, external drivers regarding uh, North Korean capabilities, but you also talked about the internal drivers as well, right? So the fact that, you know, this is very much in line with what Kim Jong-un had talked about with respect to North Korea continuing to pursue its military capabilities. And that's not just on the nuclear question, it's on a range of capabilities that North Korea has. And, and as we've talked about before on this podcast, you know, North Korea, despite the fact, uh, the nature of the regime, you know, it, it does have its own domestic politics and there might be incentives for Kim on his own accord to, even as he's pursuing uh, arrangements and accommodations to the United States, he also needs to show that, that he's demonstrating strength uh, from a North Korean perspective, I mean, maybe give us a sense of what what the internal drivers might be here and what the North Korean uh, timeline might look like. We, we've got a sense of the external drivers um, in in our previous conversations as well. Yeah, I mean, it, again, it's very difficult to know these things about about the nature of internal drivers in North Korea. I don't, I don't, for one, think that you know Kim Jong Un is necessarily in a precarious position or anything. I think his power is well consolidated. He's an authoritarian monolith for all intents and purposes. But yes, I mean, there are people within the North Korean party elite that he needs to at least demonstrate that he is taking national defense seriously. And he made an effort to do that after Hanoi in April. He delivered a major speech to the Supreme People's Assembly where one of the themes of that address was 
that he would continue to remain committed to a self-reliant national defense industrial complex and continuing the scientific advancement of um, of North Korean society. This new submarine has been under construction for a while, right? And one of the interesting things, um, so I actually reported about it originally in 2017, that the U.S. intelligence community had been watching this new submarine being built. It was going to be much larger and much more serious of a platform than the one ballistic missile submarine that North Korea has right now, which is really a test and training platform for all intents and purposes. Uh, so there's that. You know, one of the most interesting things about this demonstration is that Kim Jong-un showed the world a submarine inside of its construction hall. Um, he didn't have to do that, right? He could have waited until construction was completed. This was ready for sea trials, and he could have done a much more impressive photo op sort of out at sea. It's usually pretty unusual that the North Koreans will show off a new capability to the world within a sort of defense industrial setting. So that, to me, was pretty notable. I think um, I think it was really a matter of timing, right? I think it's to, um, you know, I, I said this in an article that I wrote with Vipin Narang for Foreign Affairs, which is basically that the North Koreans have now implemented a campaign of maximum pressure, so to speak, on the United States, that as long as the, the Trump administration drags its feet on sanctions relief, the North Koreans are going to continue to sort of slowly ramp up the volume on the kinds of things that they're showing off to the world and the kinds of missile testing that they're going to conduct. So this was, I think, a major moment, right? I think I think the big sort of takeaway for listeners about this submarine demonstration is that for the first time since February 2018, Kim Jong-un showed the world a piece of North Korean military hardware designed to carry and launch nuclear weapons. Uh, I think I think that's sort of the big message here. And that hadn't happened. Uh, it was like February 2018, February 8th, 2018, one day before the Pyeongchang Winter Olympic Games, which began the inter-Korean diplomatic process that led us to where we are now. Um, North Korea held a major military parade. That's when they showed off their ICBMs in Kim Il-sung Square in Pyongyang, uh, along with uh, the Pukuksong-2, solid-fuel, nuclear-capable, medium-range missile. And that was the parade at which they introduced this new missile that they've been testing lately. But again, to, to fast forward, I mean, throughout the diplomatic process, they completely sort of reduced the profile of nuclear weapons and their external propaganda. And in September 2018, there was another military parade. That that parade was effectively denuclearized. There were no weapons shown at that parade that were capable of fielding nuclear weapons. And now sort of I think we've, we're back at a point where Kim Jong-un is basically reminding the world that he's not going to disarm. And I think hinting at what might lie ahead for the United States, right? He developed, He delivered that ominous warning back in April that unless the United States comes to a bold decision by the end of this year on the issue of sanctions relief, uh, North Korea would have to, um, you know, move forward. And and I think what he was suggesting is that we might see a return to a, a 2017-style missile testing campaign, perhaps. The North Koreans, I'm sure, have been working on a lot of qualitative advancements for various aspects of their programs that they'd be very eager to begin testing. Or we might get something big to like a satellite launch. There have long been rumors that the North Koreans have been working on a much larger satellite launch vehicle. So there's a lot that might lie ahead. And for, you know, for internal purposes, going back to your question, I think I think all of this is incredibly significant, right? Kim Jong-un, I think, is, is saying that he's he's not naive. He won't be he won't be selling out to the Americans for anything short of a deal that advantages North Korean interests. And that's really a deal where we go step by step and the United States does partial sanctions relief for some low cost measures on the North Koreans part. Mm -hmm. And I, and I guess the big question, um, you know, sort of overall of this is to what extent is, um, you know, whatever arrangement we have right now in place between the United States and North Korea, however fragile that is, you know, how long is that going to last? 
um, or whether is it is it going to fracture entirely, right? Because we, as we've talked about on this podcast, you have um, on the one hand this this kind of ominous warning and timeline from the North Koreans for the end of this year. You have the upcoming uh, U.S. presidential elections uh, next year, and of course, increasing conversations here about uh, foreign policy and Trump's record. Um, and I guess the you know one worrying scenario is um, that I can you know see coming to fore is that you know Trump concludes that some of these North Korean so-called provocations from the U.S. perspective, um, you know, are too much, and he needs to actually strike back to demonstrate uh, some credibility or strength. Um, and then we could be in a in a very sort of um, you know, more uncertain place than than where we are right now, where we're talking about. It it seems like for all of what the North Koreans are doing, the position of the Trump administration has been quite cautious. And Trump himself has said, "Well, these are very small tasks. We'll we'll, we'll see what what happens." Very intent on preserving the fragility of this consensus because Trump, I think, views this as very much part of his foreign policy legacy to the extent that you know. No other president has made this many gains on North Korea, and, and I've done this. And so I, he very much wants to keep that uh, sort of top of mind. But it seems like the North Korean actions and realities on the ground are diverging uh, from that perception. Yeah, so I think that's, you know, that's been the concern since this process began, which was that Trump's expectations and the reality of North Korean strategic intentions are going to collide at some point, uh, even though the two are exchanging letters and continue to have a good relationship. It might be unsustainable given the fundamental differences in policies on both sides. On the question of, you know, what can what lies ahead for the process? I mean, I guess I'll begin with the short term, right? I mean, I don't expect working level talks to resume anytime soon, um, especially until there is a final decision on these upcoming exercises. If the exercises go forward, I can expect that the North Koreans will conduct exercises of their own in kind. And then, you know, it depends on how the United States and South Korea react. The South Korean defense minister sort of uncharacteristically now has been using sharper language to criticize North Korea's latest missile tests. The South Koreans have been in a little bit of a pickle, too, because they obviously are very much motivated to continue talking to the North Koreans on peaceful terms, uh, sustaining last year's two major inter-Korean declarations and the September 2018 inter-Korean military agreement. Uh, so they've actually refused to call these missile launches recently hostile acts under under the um, parameters of that agreement between the two cool. Koreas last year. So the South Koreans, um, you know, they were also the primary target of North Korea's criticism for the first round of ballistic missile launches in July, the North Korean statement that came out after those launches lashed out at the South Koreans, effectively accusing President Moon Jae-in of playing a double hand, you know, coming to the table, smiling, dealing with Kim Jong-un on one hand, but continuing to arm up South Korea on the other side. The North Koreans criticized South Korea's introduction of new advanced weaponry. I think they were talking about the two F-35As that were delivered earlier this month. The North Koreans have long bristled at sort of aerial stealth capabilities in particular. Uh, but also, you know, we have had reports that the South Koreans are planning on um, equipping a, uh, a light carrier with F-35Bs possibly in the future too. So the North Koreans sort of took aim at that and basically said that the South Korean government is not operating in good faith here. So that was a big source of criticism. So in the short term, things look pretty rocky. Um, if exercises go forward, we might be waiting longer even for working level talks. But if, if you know, well, you know, I mean, we could wake up tomorrow and the exercises could be canceled because we've seen how things like this happen in the Trump era. Uh, right. So there might be no consultation within the alliance, although I think that has gotten better at the Pentagon level recently. 
longer term, I mean, look, I mean, we're entering this very dangerous kind of fall period where Kim Jong-un has set in place a deadline of December 31st, effectively. And whether or not the U.S. is going to change policy, that's a big question. There are some people that have seen signs in July that the U.S. might be changing policy, but, you know, they're, I think, basing that impression on sort of less authoritative members of the Trump administration. Um, as far as Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, or, or certainly National Security Advisor John Bolton are concerned, I really see no signs that the U.S. is about to change policy and begin pursuing a a um, step-by-step process with the North Koreans. I think President Trump, as you correctly noted, is mostly interested in having this not turn into a debacle ahead of the 2020 election year. Um, you know, we've seen over the course of recent debates that Democrats are obviously seizing on the North Korea issue as an important foreign policy topic. And for Trump, I think going into 2021, um, going into 2020, this will be something that I think he would just mostly want to keep a lid on, which means that Kim Jong-un, you know, the only way that Kim Jong-un can really get the president's interest is by testing larger and larger things until Trump can simply no longer ignore them. He's been he's been quite good at just ignoring what the North Koreans have been doing recently, just saying that these are short-range missiles, they don't really matter. Um, so, you know, I think Kim's campaign of maximum pressure is probably going to continue over the next, uh, next six months. Yeah, I mean, I would just add, um, you know, both in the short term and the long term, uh, you know, I, I think this North Korea issue, um, you know, we've talked about about it from a more regional context as well, which is really important, right? We've always emphasized that this is something which um, comes alongside other issues that we've talked about on this podcast, flashpoints like the South China Sea, U.S.-China tensions. And so, I, you know, I think one of these, uh, the interesting developments when we see uh, North Korean actions and developments like these is that it tends to catalyze a broader regional conversation and also the U.S. Uh, approach to the region, right? So, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, any number of uh, headlines coming to fore on the fact that, for example, with the ASEAN Regional Forum, that yep. when Secretary Pompeo is going to be there, um, the U.S. Special Representative for North Korea, Steve Began, uh, will also be accompanying him. So, you know, the United States plans on raising uh, the North Korea issue as, as being a, a, a sort of a big regional security concern, you know, that's not new for the U.S., but it certainly complicates the messaging that I think some folks in the region, particularly from Southeast Asia, would have wanted, which is a more of a focus on, you know, regional development and economic issues, connectivity, um, and, you know, any clarity of messaging on, on the U.S.-China threat when you have um, issues and flashpoints like North Korea, flashpoints such as Iran uh, come up, it, it really does affect the broader regional conversation. So it's not as if we're just talking about this North Korea question in isolation. I really think this is this is a really important uh, point in terms of regional security. Yeah, uh, I'm really glad you brought up the ARF. Uh, that was one of the things I wanted to talk about that I didn't get around to. Um, yeah, so I think, I think the ARF has historically been one of those interesting forums where you have high-level North Korean representation and American participation, right? But um, as far as I know, like a few few days ago, we had reports that um, Ryong Ho, the North Korean foreign minister, the most likely representative to go to ARF this year, he's not slated to travel, according to at least reporting by South Korea's Yonhap News Agency. That might change at the last minute. Of course, it, it, you know it's very hard to predict North Korean travel plans until just a, a day or two, or until the event actually happens. So we'll have to see. I mean, that would be certainly an interesting development if uh, there was an ARF sideline interaction. I think that's uh, another thing to watch for in the coming days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. so I, I think we can kind of leave it there. Um, mm-hmm. had, a, had a good discussion on North Korea, but also the, the regional components of this. And I think one other point that 
you stress that I just want to reinforce is that even though we do talk about this as, as being sort of primarily, you know, sort of a U.S., North Korea, South Korea uh, conception, I mean, there are a variety of other actors that we've uh, we've talked about before uh, that we haven't necessarily got into, um, including Japan, Russia, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we talked about on the previous podcast, um, regional security dynamics are just really been really interesting in the last few weeks, given, you know, South China Sea, U.S.-China tensions and the tensions between uh, the Japanese and the South Koreans as well. So really a whole lot uh, just in the last few weeks that are developing and a lot to talk to um, talk about in this podcast. Yeah, no, absolutely, Prashant. Uh, I think I think, you know, this is something that we're going to be coming back to um, sooner rather than later, I suspect. Um, well, uh, thanks a lot for joining me. Great. Um, for listeners, before we end, just a note from our sponsor. This episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the Consulting and Analysis Division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risks. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Uh, so thanks a lot for listening to the podcast as always. If you like what you heard but you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. You can do that on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or any other number of podcast providers out there. And finally, if you've been a subscriber for a while, please do leave us a review. I believe we're just a couple reviews away from 150 on iTunes. So uh, it'd be great if you could get us over that 150 hump. That'd be a nice milestone to hit. But uh, also you can leave us reviews on Google Play and Spotify, uh, which we also appreciate. So thanks a lot for listening, and um, we'll be back soon with more.